We'll get into our passage in just a second. Um, I wanted to tell you something that we have coming up on Sundays, uh, not this coming week, but the following week, we're gonna be starting a new sermon series. We're gonna put a pause on the Gospel of Mark, and for six weeks, uh, we're going to do a series on the Bible, a series on scripture. Um, and uh, two things about it. First, logistically, not only will that be what we're doing on Sunday mornings, but we're gonna put our Sunday evening service on hold as well and repeat the sermon in the evenings as well as have the opportunity for a text in Q&A. Um, it says in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, that the foundation of our church, not just our church locally, but the church of Christ, is the apostles and prophets. In other words, it is the scriptures. And I've been growing tremendously concerned in the last few years that under the influence of many voices, uh, many people are settling for views of scripture that aren't just a different opinion, but are actually sawing off the branch you're sitting on. Uh, they, they don't just lead you to build your faith in a different way with different ideas, uh, but actually lead you, to, uh, lead you to fall through truth and not have anything uh, not have anything to stand upon. Um, the, there are many stated opinions about the Bible these days that are convenient because they, get, they stop you from dealing with the difficulties in Scripture. They loosen you up from the contrast between what the Bible may appear to say and what our culture says. It makes it easier to, um, to fit the Bible within our understanding. Uh, but many of these ways just... Just like I said, they're convenient, but they're not detours, they're dead ends. Uh, and so, so I want to take six weeks, uh, and by looking at the Bible and what it says about itself, talk about not just what we should believe about the scriptures, but where those other popular belief systems lead, the clear and obvious consequences of them. And so um, I think this is really important, and I think it's a vitally important message for right now. And the reason we're repeating it in the evening is not just so that you can process and come back, although you're welcome to do so, but also so you can bring, uh, bring other people and, and friends. And the Q&A will be texting. Therefore, it will be anonymous. It's not just texting to my cell phone, but through a service. Uh, and so if you have questions about these things, if you want to wrestle with things, that's fine. That's what this series is for. Um, but that's going to begin November 11th, and I just wanted you to know about it this morning. Now let's open up uh, our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. If you need a Bible to follow along this morning, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you. The black ones are Bibles. There's an index right in front, and you can find the New Testament book of the Gospel of Mark. We're in a section of Mark, last week, this week, next week, um, where we've been looking at the authority of Jesus. Just a cursory reading of Mark chapter 1, you'll see it repeated over and over, that word authority. It's clearly the point that our author, Mark, is trying to make, uh, and he's doing so at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, 
to give us the context for everything that follows. So, for example, we're going to see this morning that they were struck by the authority of his teaching, but we're not going to read a single word that Jesus spoke. Right? Isn't that interesting? Uh, And so here, what Mark is doing is he's front-loading a confrontation. He, He wants us to know if we're going to sit and listen to Jesus, if we're going to read the rest of the story, if we're going to come to understand who Jesus is, he gives us one and only one option. He makes us wrestle with Jesus' authority. He's not just an object of study. He's not just one of many opinions, at least potentially. If you're going to accept Jesus, you have to accept him as this Jesus, as the authoritative Jesus. Okay? And so last week we saw uh, how he, was, um, he had authority to call, to walk into these four fishermen's lives and tell them to leave everything behind and follow him. We talked about the fact that Jesus operates that way in our lives as well. And so we don't necessarily come to Jesus and call him into our lives. It's much more accurate to understand that he's the one who's put out the call and we can either accept it or reject it. As we look at the authority today, I want to focus on Jesus's authority in word And so with that being said, let's go ahead and read just verses 21 through 28 together. Then we'll pray. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us by your word, and I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be able to settle for anything, uh, anything less than, than wrestling with the identity of Jesus as presented here. I ask God that by your spirit you would give us not just understanding of this text, but you would press it deeply into our hearts uh, with conviction uh, as you did those who heard the apostles preach and those who heard the words of Jesus. I pray more, Lord, than we would be amazed at your word this morning, but I do pray that. We ask that you would do this work in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we saw as Jesus called these four men as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum is actually at the north end of the sea. And so uh, it's pretty easy to um, picture the story. In fact, Mark chapter 1 is one of the few places in any of the Gospels that has enough timestamps that we can actually follow it through as if it were a 24-hour period of Jesus' life. A day in the life of Christ is what we get starting here in verse 21 and through the rest of Mark. Um, Capernaum uh, has been archaeologically dug up, and although the sanctuary that they've unearthed, uh, the, the um, synagogue that they've unearthed, uh, is not this one, 
When they dug down deeper, they found the foundation beneath it that is definitely this synagogue. It's intriguing to me here the, the details that, um, that Mark brings in because this is not just a happening. It's not just a, um, uh, it's not just a story here. It's rooted with timestamps and places uh, and history. And if you come with me in June to Israel, we will walk right here. We will see these things um, if you read the Gospel of Luke, you'll discover that prior to this, Jesus has also preached in the synagogue of his hometown, uh, and his whole hometown of Nazareth basically rejects him. And so Capernaum becomes kind of his headquarters, his central location, probably out of the household of Peter, as we will see next week. But notice here, as he comes into Capernaum, it's the Sabbath, and so he goes to the synagogue. In the same way that we as Christians gather together in church on Sunday, so the Jews made it a habit to gather in their synagogues on Saturday. And basically, they did the same things that we do today. Uh, They would uh, praise and pray, and they would open the scriptures, and someone would teach. Now, the nature of uh, the synagogue kind of took form while Israel was not in the land of Israel, but exiled in the land of Babylon. A synagogue is different than a temple, okay? And so instead of a priesthood operating in oversight and teaching in the synagogue, synagogues uh, were were, uh, a place where the teaching was shared by the elder men in the church. And when guest teachers came through, they were given a place to speak. And so that's what Jesus does. He's invited to speak from the scriptures. Now, one other thing that's worth pointing out is for the most part, um, these synagogues functioned on a lectionary, meaning there was already a text assigned for every Sabbath on the calendar that they would move through. And so, like you see if you read Luke chapter 4, here Jesus would have been handed a particular scroll, scroll of scripture, opened it up, read the assigned passage for today, and then he would have sat down and began to teach. Okay? And so that's what happens here. But notice, notice uh, what Mark draws our attention to is the result, the perception of that. And so it says, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching. Now that word there for astonished is incredibly strong. Uh, it means dumbfounded. It actually means to be struck in the face. Have you ever not seen a hit coming? You're walking through the park and a frisbee takes you in the face or something like that. That reaction right after, that's the word that's used here. Okay, They're not impressed they're not encouraged, they're, they're struck, they're dumbfounded. They, uh, like I said, they are confronted here with something new. Now, I think the first thing that we should notice here is what it is that astonished them. It, they were astonished at his teaching for because he taught them as one who had authority. Now, think of all the other things that we could have assumed would have been striking about hearing Jesus teach. They were astonished at Jesus' teaching because of his evident love for human beings. That's not what struck them. They were astonished at Jesus' teaching because of his insight into the human condition. Mm -mm. It's authority. Now, we as a culture have a tendency to be anti-authority, which is actually just 
self-authority. That's what anti-authority is, right? Even anarchy is not a removing of authority. It just tries to leave all the authority in each individual, okay? Uh, we can't really escape that somebody's going to make the decisions. Uh, but in our culture, it's worth recognizing the fact that the bottom line, Mark wants to communicate it to us before he tells us about Jesus, before he gives us the teaching of Jesus, before he invites us to follow Jesus, the first thing he wants us to be struck with, dumbfounded by, is Jesus's authority. Now notice there it says he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Uh, the primary people responsible for teaching uh, and communicating the scriptures in the first century were the scribes as well as the Pharisees. Okay. The scribes were experts in the Old Testament. They studied it deeply. They read all the commentaries. They were prepared. And so most often, they were the ones who did the teaching, but they did it differently than Jesus. Okay. What's striking here about Jesus is that he spoke with authority. And for the most part, what the scribes would do, uh, and actually you can still read this if you pick up a copy of the Talmud, which is a, um, a collection of rabbinical teachings on the Old Testament. If you pick it up, you'll see that the primary way they would, uh, would do this is they would read a passage of scripture, and then they would say, now, Rabbi Hillel says that this passage means this, but Rabbi Eleazar says that this passage means this. They would present the views of the rabbis. In other words, they would uh, convey or pass down the traditional interpretation. And so Jesus didn't speak that way. In fact, uh, in fact, we never find Jesus referencing a rabbi. Not in any place where his teaching is recorded does he refer uh, to another authority. And so that's part of what's striking here. But we can push it either, even further. When people asked who Jesus was, when they tried to wrestle with this, one of the obvious candidates to define who Jesus was was the role of the prophet. Okay. Israel had had a history of prophets, a legacy, a lineage of prophets. Uh, people like Elijah and Elisha, Jeremiah and Isaiah, uh, these men had come through the Old Testament, uh, and sometimes women like uh, Moses' wife, or excuse me, Moses' sister, uh, or, or Deborah, uh, both labeled as prophetess, these were people who spoke for God. But Jesus didn't speak like a prophet. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there's a repeated refrain in the Old Testament prophets that we find over and over again, and it defines their message, and it's this. This is what the Lord says. Thus says the Lord. Never once is Jesus recorded in the New Testament as saying, thus says the Lord. In fact, if you want to look for a repeated refrain, a phrase that Jesus always uses in his teaching, it's not... I'll tell you what God says. It's this. It's truly, truly, I say to you. That's Jesus' repeated re refrain. That's the phrase. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't speak uh, with the authority of a prophet. It's something different here. But I think we can push it even further. We need to recognize that what's so striking about Jesus' authority uh, is that he speaks solely and completely from himself. And so, for example, in a modern setting, we may not reference the rabbis today, we may not do those things, but Jesus never said, experts say. 
Jesus never looked at the sociological studies and the statistics. Jesus never draws from uh, you know, those who are ahead in their field. Uh, he, uh, he doesn't point to a degree that's on his wall. On top of that, he doesn't do all of the shady ways we get around authority and speak authoritatively. Okay? Actually, I would argue that experts say is just that. That's one of my big pet peeves. That's such a broad category, experts say. What experts? What makes them experts? Just, are there other experts that disagree with this statement? Why do we do that? Because it's a seal of authority. It says, you have to believe what I'm about to say because this is what the experts say, but Jesus never did anything like that. He also didn't hide behind the plural pronoun we. You see, that's a way that we get around authority. We say, we all know, or we believe, or we must, right? And that takes the authority off of us, but it still speaks authoritatively. We don't see Jesus functioning uh, as we often do with the bully language of obviously. Right? That's another way that we speak. We say obviously, or everybody knows that, right? Which if everybody knew, we wouldn't have to say. Okay? If you're saying it in an argument, you're denying the reality of your point. It's bully language. It says, shame on you for being so dumb. We do these things all the time, but we don't see any of that in Jesus. He doesn't speak as someone who has learned, but someone who inherently, innately knows. I'll give you just one example. Late in the book of John, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Okay? Now, if somebody comes back from a, from a foreign country and tells you what it's like, you can go and visit and see if that was true or not. But when Jesus says, let me tell you what heaven is like, and he speaks it not with what I think heaven is like, not here are my opinions on the matter, but when he says, I tell you, in my Father's house are many mansions, if it weren't that way, I would have said something different. We are in a categorically different place. You see, one of the things that gives uh, authority is experience. Jesus speaks as if he actually knows, okay? Now, that's really important. It's really significant because that means that we can't turn to Jesus as just one stated opinion among many. It means that we can't open the words of the New Testament and go, let's see if we can glean any wisdom from Jesus and then set it on par and equal with other voices, we can't even add him to a roster of votes and say, well, half of the people I interviewed over here said this, and half said this, so it's an even split. Either Jesus speaks and knows, or he doesn't. His whole authority, the validity of his witness, um, the truthfulness of what he says, stands and falls with who he is, and nothing else. Okay. That's what struck those in the synagogue. Once again, this is why I think Scripture is so significant and our understanding of Scripture is so significant. Because if the Bible, especially, let's just focus on the New Testament, if the words of Christ and his apostles who he said, I will send my spirit and he will teach you all things and when you speak, it will actually be me speaking, you will carry my message, okay? So he elevates the apostles to speaking on his behalf with the same authority, if we make this just one place of reference among many, 
then we haven't actually been confronted with who Jesus really is. What I'm saying this morning is, if Jesus is this innate, knowing authority, who by experience, okay, and especially in the Gospel of John, this comes up. Uh, in fact, look at this. So in John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking with a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Jesus has some hard words for Nicodemus here. Nicodemus wants to know how to enter the kingdom of God that Jesus has been proclaiming. And Jesus says the only way is another birth. You have to be born again. And Nicodemus tries to wrap his head around it, and, and he goes, what does that mean? And as he's processing this, Jesus says this. So Nicodemus asks in verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? You claim to be a Pharisee knowing the scriptures and you can't wrap your head around the things that I just said, but notice what he says next. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told testimony, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Okay. So when Jesus says, God is, however the sentence is finished, he says it not as somebody who has learned this by study, who has taken a poll, but as someone who knows. That's the way Jesus frames his own self-understanding. Now, where does this authority come from? We need to talk about this because this can sometimes be taken as an example. And it says, basically, Jesus was a good teacher because he spoke confidently, right? As if this is uh, on par with something you would learn at Toastmasters, okay? Or maybe Jesus spoke from a place of truth because he really knew himself. He was self-actualized. The point here is not to say, if you want to be a good teacher, be like Jesus. The point is, what are you going to do with the words of Christ, that's what Mark wants to get across this morning. That's what he wants to convey. It was not his tone of voice that was striking. It was that he spoke not only as if he knew, but let's add another layer of authority. He spoke as if to disagree with him would not only be wrong, but would also have consequence. That's what authority means. Okay, and so, uh, so basically... There's a whole list of phrases that if we understand rightly who Jesus is, we can't say. Like, that's just your interpretation. Okay, if Jesus really is the authority he speaks as, then that's not an option. What we can only say is, if I believe differently, I am wrong. Now, this doesn't remove the important work of asking the question, is Jesus who he really appears to be? That's essential. All I'm trying to get us to do this morning is ask the right question, because there's a lot of wrong ones, okay? And if you just say, did Jesus say some good stuff, you really stick yourself in a corner, okay? Because the things that Jesus said uh, can't be just sifted out and lifted up and elevated apart from his identity. C.S. Lewis uh, tried to make this point when he said, the one thing that you can't say about Jesus is that he was just a great moral teacher, 
He says anyone who says that hasn't really wrestled with the words of Christ because he doesn't proclaim himself as a moral teacher but as God in human flesh. He says that puts him on the par with the guy in the institution who believes himself to be Napoleon or a poached egg. Generally, we don't make those people religious authorities. Generally, we don't turn to those. And so he says it's, it's one of three options. Either Jesus is a lunatic and therefore it makes his truth questionable or Jesus is a liar, meaning that when he was talking about himself being God, he wasn't telling the truth. And the only option left to us is Lord. That Jesus was a good teacher, C.S. Lewis says, isn't an option to us because it wasn't one that was left to us. And so if we're going to weigh Jesus and his words, we have to weigh them completely and fully. And I'm not just speaking to those of you this morning who are not Christians. For all of us, I'm asking this morning, have we been confronted with the reality of Christ's claims? Have we dealt with the fact of Jesus as the full authority? Okay. The question here is, at some point in the process, at some point in your thinking, there will be a final decision, and the decision is, are you going to judge the words of Jesus, or are those words going to judge you? Amen. Do you see how different those things are? We're not on equal footing with Jesus. That's, that's the point here. And what concerns me is that oftentimes that's not the way we behave with the words of Jesus. We take and we resonate and we chew on the ones uh, that, that we already agree with, the ones that we already find valuable. In fact, it's one of the things that's interesting to think about, okay? Remember here, these people have never heard Jesus speak. These people have never heard the Sermon on the Mount. These people would not likely to say, be likely to say, I believe that God is love, okay? This all comes from, these people would not be likely to call God their father, all of this stuff stems from Jesus' ministry, and it's been enculturated so much that there's much of Christianity that even non-Christians now share in common with the Bible. They just don't understand where it came from. It came from Jesus. And so many of us read words of Jesus, and we resonate with them. But then we ignore words of Jesus that bother us. If Jesus is an authority, that's not an option. All of us must wrestle with the words of Jesus. But the only option that's not available is, I won this round, Jesus. It's not an option. Either Jesus is not an authority, or he is. That's the only category that's left open to us. Now, here, these folks are astonished. And I would say if you read the New Testament closely and you look at the words of Jesus, they are truly astonishing. They're striking. They are completely, uh, completely new and fresh and different. And once again, growing up in a country that has such a Christian heritage, that may not strike you afresh. But take the time. Take the time to read from the other religions of the world. Okay. Take the time to go back and read from the documents of the first century. Go ahead and read the works of the rabbis. Recognize how many words in just the Sermon on the Mount alone have become part of our modern conscience. Okay. 
Think of, uh, as I read a quote from a pastor yesterday, he said, if you took all of modern psychology and took out everything that was redundant and everything that was self-contradictory and distilled it down, all you would have is basically a poor repetition of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus spoke with authority. He said new things. Uh, he spoke in such a way that it is significantly striking and compelling. They were astonished, but that's not enough. One of the things we're going to see throughout the Gospel of Mark uh, is that people are shook up by the things that Jesus did, impacted, interested in the things that Jesus did, but that's not far enough. Okay. These people are astonished at the teaching of Jesus, but so were the Pharisees who plotted his death. These people are astonished at the teaching of Jesus, but no doubt some of them were gathered around Jerusalem in Pilate's patio crying, crucify him. In a second, we're going to see that they are saying, who is this man? And a demon looks at Jesus and says, I know who you are. But James tells us, don't say to yourself, I know who God is. I know that he's strong. He says, even the demons believe those things and shudder. If it's about authority, it's not just about being amazed by it. It's about allegiance. Okay, once again, this is the authority not just of Jesus who knows, but the authority of Jesus as Lord. When we become Christians, one of the words we use to explain that happening is surrender. Okay. Now, in general, in modern parlance, in ancient parlance, in any other text, surrender is not a good thing. It's defeat. It's waving the white flag. It's losing the battle. It's the end of the war, and your side has lost. Now we can talk about sweet surrender, but that's only because of the one we surrender to. Okay? But you need to understand that uh, there is no way to follow Jesus without surrender, without laying down your arms, without ending the war and, and on your knees proclaiming the allegiance to Christ and his authority. It's not just that too many of us are caught up in the opinions of others. Too many of us are obsessed with our own opinions. We're so interested in our own perspective. But if Jesus is who he claims to be, then life and health is not found with our own opinions. Proverbs says there's a way of man that seems right in his own eyes, but it leads to death. You know, when women give birth, something happens chemically after the birth so that they forget the pain of labor. And many scientists believe that that's a good thing or they'd never want to have another child, right? It's a significant, not just healing of the body, but erasing of the pain uh, so that you're prepared to do it again. Unfortunately, I think a lot of us have the same mechanism when it comes to making mistakes. We forget where our own opinion leads. We forget the damage our wisdom does. We neglect how many times we've walked this road and found ourselves off the path, muddy, broken down in a ditch and in need of help. 
But there's also a tremendously good side to this. Yes, it's full surrender. Yes, if Jesus is Lord, then you are not. That's implied with it. Uh, but also, think of the things that Jesus said. Think of the things that he said with this authority, the things that we can say are faithful and true, trustworthy, the things that we can build our lives on. Okay. If Jesus is who he said he is, then we can rest in confidence in even decisions that don't make sense. Jesus says, if somebody slaps you across the face, turn your other cheek to them. There is no amount of thinking that's going to make sense of that reality unless you obey it. Oftentimes in obedience, we start to learn the validity of the things Jesus says, but there's no guessing up front. Jesus is like the voice when a building's on fire and you're in the second story and there's so much smoke, all you can hear is a voice through the smoke that says, jump and I'll catch you. But the good news is, the person saying that is really there and can really see you and is really strong and will absolutely catch you. Okay? The value of Jesus being authority is that that makes his words trustworthy. You can build your life on it. You can take your risks on it. And that's exactly what Jesus calls those who follow him to do. It's costly. It's risky. risky. He says Basically, that no one can follow him unless they take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow them. He says, if anyone loses their life for my sake, they will find it. But if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. That is a precarious scenario, is it not? When we trust in Jesus, we are literally risking everything. Paul says this about the resurrection. He says... If Jesus wasn't truly resurrected, then Christians of all people are to be the most pitied. Why, just because we're wrong? No, the assumption is lots of people are wrong, okay? Because we've put all our chips on the table, because we've given up so much, because it costs so much to follow Jesus. It really is an all or nothing scenario, and the great news is that the answer is all. That's why the New Testament says that it, Jesus is the very yes and amen. He's the one we see in Revelation who has written on his thigh, faithful and true. Jesus said, not one of my words will fail. And once again, it's either true or, if it's, or not. There's no in between, but if it's true, it means that that is where we find the confidence to live a life that honors God. Paul says in the book of Romans, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need to be clear here. Oftentimes when we talk about faith or when we talk about belief, what we actually mean is positivism, optimism. Everything will be fine if you just believe. That's not how faith works in the Christian life. Faith is just taking God at his word. Faith is trust. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God says, this is the way life is, and you live that way. God says, choose this and not that, and you make that choice. God says, these things are important and these other ones aren't, and so you value them differently. That's what faith is, but it's not built on how strong you are, but on the faithfulness of the one we trust in. 
And actually, there's, there's a really good illustration of this. If you are terrified that the Golden Gate Bridge isn't strong enough to support you. Now, we would probably call that an irrational fear because you could stand there shaking in your boots as thousands of cars and semi-trucks pass over it. But the point is this. If you crawl on your hands and knees in tear and fear across the bridge, you will get to the other side. Your, your faith is, one, not what holds you up, the bridge does, and two, uh, the most important part of faith is putting your trust in the bridge, not your opinion of it, okay? Jesus speaks as one who has authority in his teaching, and they find it astonishing, but that's not all that's in the text. Not only is Jesus' word on what is and what isn't, what's true and what's false, what's right and what's wrong, not only does he speak that authoritatively, but notice verse 23. Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so here there's this man who's apparently demon-possessed. And there's no, um, there's no removing, there's no stripping the reality of exorcism from the ministry of Jesus. It's present. It's almost on every page. It's a continuous part of his ministry. And side note, for those of you who would just say, oh, in the ancient world they just thought demons were everywhere, it's not actually true. According to the first century documents we have, exorcism was relatively rare. It happened but it was pretty occasional. It wasn't, many, you know, it wasn't uh, an area where many people got their degrees. There wasn't a whole you know, career path of exorcism. Um, but Jesus does significantly talk about regularly this spiritual realm. And so he explains his own ministry and he says, no one plunders the goods of a strong man's house unless he binds the strong man first. And Jesus says, that's basically what I've done. I've defeated Satan, and therefore I have power over his minions. Jesus warns uh, in one of his parables about a person who is demon-possessed and has that demon passed out, uh, and so now he's like an empty house. And that demon goes and gets seven more, and they have this big house party, uh, and he's in a worse state than the first. He says that the human life is a precarious one because there really is a spiritual realm, and this shouldn't surprise you, it's unseen. You see, I think a lot of times what bothers us about the possibility or the reality of the demonic is that we don't see it, but it was the same in Jesus' day. Where is this demonic-possessed man? He's sitting in the synagogue. He's probably been there every week. He's been present, and it's gone unseen. What draws it out, what's striking, is the presence of Jesus. But here's the thing. We often make two mistakes with the demonic realm. The first, I always think of that phrase from Unusual Suspects, right? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Okay. Materialism has taken hold of the world in such a way that we struggle with the miracles. We struggle with the spiritual. Angels and demons and the fact that there might be an unseen realm, uh, we wrestle with, but not because it's been disproven, not because it's been set aside. There is a tremendous faith commitment in materialism that says, all I see is all there is. 
Don't forget how poor our sight is as human beings, how limited our vision. Don't forget how many things science is going. We might have an answer someday, but right now we can't explain why this works this way. Okay. But what's more important here is even when we compare the exorcisms of Jesus to the few that we have records of, they're completely different. Just think of the films you've seen. It's Halloween. There's probably one in theaters right now. What's involved in an exorcism? A big book of instructions, a ton of rituals, tools, you know, one of those cool medical black bags, but instead inside it is completely non-medical things, right? We don't see any of that with Jesus. No incantations, no ritual, no process, no tools. All he does is open his mouth and the battle is over. We don't just see Jesus' authority in his word as he teaches. We see the authority of his word with the demonic. So look at what happens. This demon speaks up, and I want you to notice he speaks in the plural. Verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This may be the first fight, but this demon recognizes there's a bigger battle going on. He speaks in the plural because he knows Jesus stands against. You see, these things were so consistent in Jesus' ministry that even his deepest critics couldn't say they didn't happen. The Pharisees had no interest in validating the ministry of Jesus, but these things happened in such profound and significant ways that this is what they said. They said, well, clearly, Jesus is so good at this that he's actually playing for the other team. Clearly, he does this because he's a son of the devil himself. And Jesus just says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Why, why would I be here wrecking my own household, right? He says, but if I am casting out demons by the finger of God, then clearly the kingdom of God has come. When we use this phrase spiritual warfare, the war begins here. As Jesus invades earth, bringing about a new kingdom, and in doing so, there is a spiritual battle that goes place. But notice how Jesus responds, verse 25. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. Now, when we're involved in spiritual warfare, just like when we pray, we have to do it in Jesus' name. But notice, there's no stamp of other authority here. Not even in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He just commands, be silent. The phrase there is actually, be muzzled. If we were to be accurate, shut up would be a good way to put it. Okay? And come out of him. And it's over. And one of the things that we need to remember is although the story focuses on a demon, this is a demon-possessed person. This is deliverance. This is freedom. Okay. Now, some like to say, well, probably this is just how the first century world described mental illness. They didn't understand it, and so anyone who had mental problem was, was apparently demon-possessed. The Bible makes a pretty clear distinction between healing and demonic deliverance, for one. But even if that were the case, what school of psychiatry works like this? What place do we find where a man just speaks and that ends the condition? See, the challenge is we are physical beings and so we have physical problems. We live in a spiritual world and are spiritual beings and have spiritual problems and very rarely, very rarely is it one or the other. 
Very often there's an interrelationship between these things, okay? But either way here, Jesus speaks with authority and, uh, and addresses this significant thing. Look at verse 26, the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey them. Once again, notice in the words of the audience that observed this themselves, this is not normal. This is not every day. It's not like every fourth Sunday, or excuse me, every fourth Saturday at the synagogue, it's demon possession day and they can all come and have their demons cast out. This was unexpected, it was unseen, and it was rattling. I will tell you personally that when you do encounter the spiritual realm, that's what it is. It's rattling. Okay. But the significance and the striking thing here is not just when we pull back the veil we see evil, it's when we pull back the veil and see evil we see Christ authority, conquering, victor. We see power. Notice verse 28, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. If I could give you an exhortation this morning, it would be this. When we read the New Testament, when we read the gospel stories, when we look at who Jesus is, every person has to come to their own conclusions. And it's not something that should be weighed uh, lightly or just assumed. Just going, yeah, he's probably the Messiah and moving on with your life is not a good idea. Jesus constantly warns those who want to follow him about the cost of following him. Uh, and the truth is, Jesus himself warns that there's many pretenders, many false messiahs, many who would claim to be something. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's people in this room who have family members who have followed these charismatic, truth-speaking people into terrible things. Weighing this thing is significant. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, than his opinions, his opinions on what you do with your money, his opinions on your sexuality, his opinions on uh, where you should go in life or what you should do, his opinions uh, on what's coming, don't matter. But if they're true, if he is who he says he is, then not only can we build a life on Jesus, but to not do so would be ruin. Consider the things this morning that Jesus says. He says it's not things outside of us that make us unclean, but out of the heart comes uncleanness. All idolatry, sexual immorality, all hate and envy and murder, all comes out of the heart and that makes us unclean. In other words, Jesus says the greatest problem in your life is you. It's the depth of who you are. Jesus says that sin is so serious, he suggests this, if your eye causes you to sin, it would be better to pluck it out and cast it from you 
than live with two eyes and then be cast into hell. Consider that Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. Consider that Jesus says, all who are thirsty, come to me and drink of me. And he who drinks what I have to give will no longer thirst. In fact, a fountain of living water will flow up from within them. Think of Jesus says, uh, when he says, all who were weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Think of Jesus who says, but I tell you the truth, we're going to Jerusalem and I will be handed over to the Gentiles and I will be crucified and I will be buried and three days later I will raise again. Think of Jesus who said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Think of Jesus who said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Jesus who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. There is always a time for weighing the words of Jesus by weighing the person of Jesus. And then there's a time for decision. Then there's a time for commitment. Then there's a time to make the great statement, the one that we make in baptism, the one we proclaim in communion, the reality that is faith in Jesus, which is this proclamation, Jesus is Lord. And not just Lord over my religious life, not just Lord over my Sunday, but King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Authority over all that I am and all that the world is. And Paul says in Philippians that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then once again, don't forget the blessing. It's not just that everyone will be responsible for what they do with Jesus. It's also if Jesus is who he is, then we can take him at his word. And that's why Paul says that all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are available to us in Christ Jesus. Everything we need for life and godliness is available to Christ Jesus. In Jesus Christ, we are justified, forgiven, adopted into the family of God. All of these things, but they hinge on this one point. Who is Jesus? And if you don't know, I would encourage you, it's absolutely worth coming to a conclusion on that. And if you do, live on it, stand on it. No longer waver between two opinions. Stake your whole life on it because he gave his life for you. And that wasn't just a death, it was resurrection. It was validated. It was proven and demonstrated, and so the life we live, yes, is a life of faith, but he who has promised is faithful. Let's pray. Father, I think in our hearts this morning, 
we all need to kneel afresh before your authority. To declare what you declare about yourself, that you are the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. That you are the Son of Man, whom the Ancient of Days gave all the authority, the kingdoms, and the power in the book of Daniel. That there is no other name on heaven or on earth by which we must be saved. I ask that you would forgive us of our confidence that stems from our own smarts, from our own study, from our own experience, especially where it stands against the one who is not just truth speaking, but the very truth himself, the way, the truth, and the life. I pray, Lord, we would open our battle or open our Bibles not just to glean whatever we strike is good, but to see who we really are, that it would be a mirror that would show us where we are wrong, where we are sinful, and that we would come again to you for washing, for cleansing, for setting right. The disciples called you teacher. And I pray, Lord, that we would be your disciples, we would be your students, we would sit under your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the authority you have, not just over the things we understand, but the things we don't. Not just over our physical world, but over the spiritual realm as well. And I pray, Lord, that we would see and experience and taste and bring about the victory in the name of Jesus, which is powerful. which is final. We ask that you would help us to see afresh who Jesus is by your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen.